Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. So glad to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, that's my embarrassed wife. And uh, I get, oh, they're going to Kidmo. All right, have fun, guys. It really was a a blessing so far to be with you this morning in the worship and hearing what I think is a prophetic word. And uh, Pastor Linda, I don't I don't feel like you have to stop preaching that. And uh, you know that's really it. When we think about the thirty hour famine, we think about Compassion International, we think about killing Christians, and then we turn on the news and everybody's sort of outraged. And we're going to solve this. And it's just kind of all over the map. Uh, When you look at kind of the best secular humanism can offer, it's like, why won't everyone be nice to each other? You know, you're like, bro, you know, the reason I think with Christianity, you look at the Bible, you look at Christianity and it's the difference is Christianity is intellectually robust and existentially satisfying. Like for, for a Christian, you go, yeah. Yeah, this is tremendous evil in the world. And slow and steady, we're not all a bunch of slacktivists. We don't blow up social media. Just, you know, for the last couple millennium, have been slow and steady following a couple things that are in our book from day one. The reason you don't kill somebody is because they were made in the image of God. And a secular humanist is running around like a chicken with his head cut off, running around going, we've got to stop this, and it's wrong. Why? If we're just a bunch of accidents that just sort of molecularly smashed into each other, strong devour the weak, bruh. And there's no, there's no theological basis for it. But Christians have a doctrine from day one about why you have to be treated with respect. The reason there's a 30-hour famine, the reason that, 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 that we reach out to the poor and we don't like get all social media and excited about it or whatever, the reason, it's like, yeah, this is just what we do. Why? Because that person was made in the image of God. And then they were blood-bought. If you don't understand that, that means when Jesus came, he stretched out his arms on that Roman cross, blood poured out. It was God's only begotten son. It was a gift. Why? To redeem those precious people made in the image of God. You see what I'm getting at? And for a Christian, this falls in line, right in line intellectually. It's like we don't have to run around and go all crazy. We just have to follow our Lord, our soon-coming king, and do what he asked us to do. You know, it makes sense. Uh, sometimes you're right, it gets a little twisted when you watch the news. I, I took a news fast the last couple weeks. I said, yeah, just because Jackie comes in is like, why are you so angry? And I was like, are you seeing this? There's a brick through the TV. She's like, what happened? You know? um, and, uh, so uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and it has everything to do with what we're talking about. The theme that I've been in in my church, I've been studying a series called God Delights In, and I did a little tongue-in-cheek, our graphics person. I said, hey, I want to do a series on the stuff that makes God happy. And she comes back with this. What would make God press the like button on his Facebook page? And I was like, you know what? Let's roll with it. I don't think God had Facebook. Face scroll, maybe. But not. But you see, so it's a little tongue-in-cheek. But you get the idea. Hey, what makes God happy? And you would think, what do you mean? In one sense, theologically, this is a joke. God is the happiest being there is. It's not like things have to make God happy. And yet, in the scriptures, I stumbled upon this um, this, this verse that God delights in something. And I, I just sat back and thought, so God goes, huh, 
I like that. No, I really like that. And it got me thinking, like, what sense does it make theologically to think about God delighting in something? So I did a study of all the times where delight is used in Scripture with God as the subject. Because it talks all the time about what we delight in and everything. But to, but to find the places where it says God delights in stuff. And then built a sermon series about it. Because the answers were kind of surprising. It wasn't necessarily what I thought. But it turns out God delights in things. A couple weeks ago when I was here, I preached a sermon out of Psalms. The first thing God delights in. You can go back and listen to that if you like. But we've just kind of been moving through. And I've got another one for you. God willing, in a couple weeks when I'll be back with you, I've got another one with you. So we'll just kind of hit one uh, throughout the summer and see how far it goes. Of course, I did all this work only to realize, and this happens, only to realize it was already done. There's a book, John Piper writes a book called The Pleasures of God, where he's like, I found out God delights in stuff and wrote a book about what God delights in. I was like, mwah, mwah, you know, <laughs> like, Ugh. that's okay, that's how it should be. You know, we all play, it's, we just got the one book, I mean, isn't it? yeah. Um, so today, what God delights in, and you think about, the, the reason I said it all ties in together, you know, he delights in mercy not sacrifice. You know, you think about 30-hour famine, you think about the, the, the compassion ministry that not just happens, yes, we're supporting Compassion International, yes, we're supporting World Vision, but your church does these monthly feedings, you're supporting this fam. I mean, you know, you're doing that, you're being the church, and that's what God's saying, he's going, I like that, I like that. Uh, he, he tells, there's one point where he tells the ancient Israelites, you know, honestly, your, your worship rituals and stuff, they're starting to stink, because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not impressed with all your sacrifices. If God were saying that in modern day language, he'd say, I don't want your churchianity, I want your Christianity. You know, I, I want to I see, are, do you have, mer- is there any love in your heart or is it just a bunch of rituals? He delights in that. And so anyway, today, what God delights in, the one for today is from Luke chapter 12. And so I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12. I'll, I'll have in just a moment some of these scriptures up on the screen, but I want you to turn to Luke 12, turn in your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, however you get there. Luke chapter 12, and I want to I show you that uh, what he delights in today is one, it's actually one, uh, it's one, one, ver- one verse in Luke 12 that's in the middle of a sermon he preached, the middle of a series that, that Jesus did. On And you're going to love this. You're going to love it. It is in the middle of a sermon Jesus preached on the topic of worry. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Anxiety. Fear. Stress. Here is what I love as a preacher. When you preach a sermon and you say, hey guys, today we're going to talk, God has a word for you. If you struggle with worry or anxiety, God has a word for you today. Listen up. What I love, your introduction's done. You know what I mean? People are like, yep, I'm in. Let's rock, right? I've been scared. Actually, since I came in here, I have this worry right now. Thank you. I have an ulcer. Like, literally. Like, you know, you know how you preach that? It's like you're in, you, have, you, have to do, you have to do zero work in building an introduction. Hey, guys, we're going to talk about anxiety. Anybody in here have anxiety? Anybody in here have stress? Anybody have those triggers that keep you up at night? God's word is going to speak to your heart right now. It's like, okie doke. Sometimes, am I right? Sometimes as a preacher, you get a word to preach on, and the introduction is not easy. You know, if you're preaching on the, that Jesus is our new and better high priest in the order of the old Melchizedek, you're, introdu- you're just grasping. You guys know how it is when you've sacrificed a ram for the altar. <laughs> you slit his throat. Anybody been there? You can't remember where to sprinkle the blood. Am I right? Isn't that the worst? Yeah. You're like trying to build any kind of like, you know, this isn't, and, you got, and it's there, it is relevant. You just got to kind of sweep away some of the years, but it's right there. Hey, but when you preach on worry, come on, we're preaching on anxiety. And Jesus, in this amazing sermon, has four points. He gives four fear knots. 
Four do not worries. Four be ye not anxious. Four chill outs in a row, and we'll go through them real quick. Just and we're, we're, we're talking on the fourth one. We're talking on the fourth one. I'll show you why. The first one, I tell you, this is, oh, sorry, verse 12. I got ahead of myself. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. What? I mean chapter 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, uh, I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, it is somewhat encouraging to me that Jesus preached his, his message on worry not to godless heathen, to his friends. These are the disciples, okay? These are the people that are following him. Here's why I say that's important. If you're a Christian and you've been coming to church for a while, what you'll eventually start to hear is that worry is not just a bad little thing that's stressing you out. Worry is a symptom, a blossom of a deeper seed called a lack of trust in God. And so you'll be sitting in church. No kidding, I've had this happen when I've been listening to a sermon. You'll be sitting in church, and you'll hear the preacher say, anybody in here struggle with worry? Yeah, I'm so worried, insecure. Well, worry is not just a bad habit. Worry is a sin. You're like, I was already worried about worry. (laughs) Now it's worse, you know what I mean? And you feel so guilty on top of that. And you're like, am I the only Christian? And you look around and every other Christian's like, well, I lost my job. My house burned down. God is good. You know, and you're like, how does he, what is it? Is it ju- am I like a dysfunctional Christian that I love Jesus with all my heart and I still struggle with worry? Apparently not. Apparently not. Jesus is talking to you. If you are a Christian who feels like, why do I still struggle with worry? If, 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 if Jesus has paid it all and it's all done, why do I still have that? You're in the perfect place today. Perfect place to hear a word from God. Jesus doesn't say, hey, well, come on. I tell, I tell you who worry, get over it. I'm the Lord. Risen tomb. End of Luke 12. Let's go to Luke 13. That's not what he says. I tell you, my friends. And he gives you four do not fears. Sorry. Back to the verse. Here's the first. Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Okay, so his first is, um, (laughs) yeah, don't fear those who can kill the body. The implication, he knew we would fear death, and particularly death by persecution. Matthew's version of this is even better. He says, uh, 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 don't don't fear those who kill the uh, you know, the worst they can. He's basically Jesus is basically looking at his disciples, going, "Guys, I'm about to send you out. It's going to get rough out there. <laughs> Guys, don't worry, because all they can do is kill you." <laughs> now, don't you think maybe there was just one disciple that would have been like, <laughs> "Yeah, ah." Uh, but that's really bad, right? All right? So his implication is simply, we need not fear death. And, uh, okay. Verse 11. <clears throat> verse 11. Right after death, this is the second one. You have to go to verse 11. I told you I'll move quickly through these. He tells them the second fear not. Here's where we see it. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious. There it is. Fear not about how you should defend yourself or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what what you're supposed to say. This is what I love. Right after fear of death, the second thing Jesus points out, public speaking. Like it's right up there with death. Isn't that great? For those of you who are nervous, who think I'm not bold, you ever wonder like, 
if, is evangelism supposed to be easy? Like at your workplace, don't sometimes, don't we as preachers make it sound so easy and natural? What? Just share your faith with your boss at work. And you're sitting there going, it's like, it's like I just told you to run a marathon up Mount Everest. Or something. Like, that, that, you don't understand. That's difficult. And here's what I love. Jesus acknowledges, yeah, it is. You're not a failure as a Christian if you go, hey, I'm really not that bold at evangelism. Yeah, Jesus put it up there and said, I know it's really hard. He doesn't say you don't have to do it. What he, what he points out is, yeah, it's really hard, but you don't have to worry about it. I'll come back to why on all these. But, but you don't. So don't be worried. Uh, he knew we would fear death, particularly death by persecution. He knew we would fear being bold for our faith, public speaking, speaking out in front, of, in this case, in front of the authorities and the rulers and all that stuff. And, uh, and the, the third one, therefore I tell you, and this one's probably more common, you've heard of this one. Maybe because we live in America, we, say we have freedom of speech, we're probably not going to be killed for our faith, so, so we focus on this one. But they're all, they're all still there. I mean, the third one, therefore I tell you, do not, here's the third one, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. This is the eating and drinking and what you're going to wear, the kind of thing 30-hour famine really hits home with people. You say, you know what? The Lord is going to take care of us. So he knew that we would fear. He knew we'd sweat, food, clothes, get, getting our basics in life figured out, okay? That's it. Everybody got the, the three? The three fe- I told you there's four, but, but we got to get these right. Don't fear death, death by persecution. Don't fear public speaking, being bold for your faith, especially when you're, especially when, when you're in front of a hostile crowd. And don't fear, uh, you know, the basic necessities of life. I've got you. And then he goes back and tells you why. And we will go through them. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Here's why. Because after that, there's nothing more they can do. Uh, what's the implication here? His implication is clear. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to any of you. Hell is. Eternal separation from God is the worst thing that can happen to any one of us, not death. For the believer, death, interestingly, only heightens our already connection to God. While I said that in America we don't fear these things, and I didn't know that Pastor Linda was already talking about killing Christians, but the Lord, I I feel the same way. I mean, we're reading the same news, we're reading the same book, so it's no surprise. but, uh, you know, the, 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 the 21 Coptic Christians, uh, you remember this one? So the, so the ISIS, you know, makes this propaganda in two, two rows by the sea. They march them out, and the Catholic Church and the, the Coptic Church both have already declared them martyrs. And, um, anyway, so this propaganda video. What, what ISIS didn't predict was that uh, uh, both Muslims and Christians in Egypt, because these were Egyptians who had gone to work in Libya and happened, and they were captured and everything and killed, beheaded by ISIS, what they couldn't predict was the outcry in Egypt. And uh, so maybe you've seen this. This two rows by the sea. This simple scripture pamphlet. Uh, 1.65, according to Christianity Today, 1.65 million scripture leaflets designed to bring comfort to a nation. Uh, and you can download these. Just Google two rows by the sea. But 1.65 million scripture leaflets went out. It is by far the single most widely distributed Christian leaflet in Egypt's history. Quote, Remas Atala, General Director of the Bible Society of Egypt. Uh, and in this, there's a lot in this, and you can read it. It's some simple scripture, but it, it, it talks about which, you know, which row truly pleases God, which row, because they march them out with this row of the black soldiers and this row of, you know, the, the, the dressed in black, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, and then the row of the orange guys, the orange jumpsuits and everything. 
I won't read you the whole poem, but the thing that struck such a chord in the nation of Egypt as people are trying to heal from this and trying to get together at the very end, this Christian, it's a Christian pamphlet, it's from scripture, but the one at the end, and it reminds me, when I read it, I was like, that's it, that's what Jesus was saying in Luke 12, 4. I won't read the whole poem, it's a short poem, but at the end it says, a simple question, who fears the other? The row in orange watching paradise open? Or the row in black with minds evil and broken? Where's the fear? Where's the real fear? Is it not in the terrorist? See, a terrorist is using murder to gain something in paradise. To the Christian, death is never something to be celebrated. I don't care. Death is never death is a result of the fall. But for a Christian, watch this. Death, for the Christian, it's not about what you gain. For the Christian, it's even in the face of death, there's something that death cannot take away. See, it's what you already have, and that's eternity with God. And that's already started for you. And death will not separate your fellowship with God. That's Romans 8, neither life nor death. See? And for, for a terrorist, they're using death to gain something in paradise. But for the martyr, even death cannot take away that which they already have. So who fears the other? And that's what Jesus means by Luke 12, 4. I can't soften this for you. I don't know what I would have said if a disciple raised his hands, but that's really bad. But Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't fear them that can kill the body. And then he says, but I'll show you who to fear. Fear the one who, after killing the body, has the power of body to throw body and soul into eternal hell. That's the one to fear, the one with real power in the universe. The... Uh, the, the Luke 12, 4 is not really, a, like I said, necessarily applicable to those of us who live a comfortable life where we have certain freedoms and protections, but who knows? And certainly for our brothers and sisters around the world, I have no doubt that Luke 12, 4 has been of great comfort to them over the last few months. As for public speaking, <laughs> I won't preach on this. I'll just ask. Do you see verse 12? For the Holy Spirit, you're scared to death to talk to somebody. You're not going to know what to say. You're going to mess it up. You're probably going to turn them into a Satan worshiper. You're convinced because like everything's going to go wrong. But your buddy has come to you because he saw you put a Bible on your desk at work. And because they know you're the Christian, I asked some people at work. I said, how realistically, how do you share your faith at work? And a lot of them said the same thing. They said, just, just let it be known that you're the Christian and watch what happens when people at your workplace have crisis. They always go to you. They don't go to the secular humanist. They don't go to the loudmouth. They go to the one with the Bible on the desk because they go, all right, my psychic said this, and my spiritual uh, instructor said this, and it ain't working. Uh, are you a Christian? I'll take all the help I can get. What do you got for me, right? And they come, and he says, in those moments, he said, just be ready. Just be ready. And in those moments, you're scared to death. I won't know what to say. I won't know what to say. And so I won't preach on this. Just give me a little nod if this has ever happened to you. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Has that ever happened to you? So just say this so I don't have to go on. Yeah, because you're going, I don't know what I'm going to say. And then they come to you, and you're just like, you just say stuff. And you're like, when you get done, you're like, where did that come from? And you didn't, like, Tom Richter on your shoulders, like, Luke 12, 12, you know? You're like, oh, thanks. Weird Tom image on my shoulder. Yeah, that's it. He's telling you. He, he promised that. So you're not crazy if that happens. You're walking by the Spirit. That's why you don't have to fear uh, God's got you. Verse uh, 12 says you don't have to fear public speaking because God's got you. And the last one, you don't have to fear what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear because, yo, 
God's got you. And he gives this great illustration. He says, consider the lilies of the field. And they don't, they don't work. They don't toil. You never see a lily. Like, I, well, you know, can you imagine on like the 7 train at 5 a.m. You see a lily, like got the New York Times. You know, what are you doing? I got my fertilizer for all the little buds back home. You know, <laughs> they're not sweating. You know what I mean? A lily's like, my 401k is crashing. We'll never get the nitrates or the sun that we need for photosynthesis. It's not going to happen going to happen. They neither work nor spin, right? And yet, and yet, see these little deadbeats, they just mooch, right? And what happens? Their heavenly father clothes them. And you and I know that you take the 10 best dressed, you know, the Academy Award, the red carpet nonsense, and the, the next day, then they make catty and snarky remarks about who was wearing what. The Bible says if you took the 10 best-dressed celebrities in the country and you put them up next to a field of wildflowers, the wildflowers win every time, see? They can't compete, and that's how good. And he's saying, and you're worth more than a flower, see? You're worth more than a sparrow. God's got you. Okay, everybody clear? The reason you don't have to fear death is because God's got you. The reason you don't have to fear public speaking and evangelism is because God's got you. And the reason you don't have to fear what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, is because God's got you. And then, in one unspeakably glorious verse, one verse, he closes the sermon with the fear that underlies all those other fears. If the reason I don't have to fear death is God's got me, and the reason I don't have to fear evangelism is because God's got me, and the reason I don't have to fear, you know, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, and all that stuff, I can just seek first the kingdom, and all that stuff will be added, is because God's got you. Then the real question underneath all this is, what kind of God has got me? Who is God? See, it really comes down to what I believe about God. And if I've got all my eggs in one basket, I want to be awfully sure that that's the right basket. And that's why he ends with this. And this is it. This is the last verse. Last one I'll put up there. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Let me unpack this, and then we'll be done. In this is a sermon for everybody who struggles with worry, this is really important. This is the whole application part. For everybody who struggles with worry, this verse is your text for a sermon that I'm not going to preach to you, but that I'm going to train you for you to preach to yourself. Okay? So here's what you do. If you have a clean sheet of paper, start. Uh, if you just want to jot down on your phone a little text to yourself or whatever, it is a short three-point sermon that I want you to preach to yourself this week. That's your text, Luke 12, 32. So the first thing is Luke 12, 32. Now, often I like to do an intro in a sermon, you know, to get everybody on board. Here's the thing. You're going to have to write your own intro. I don't know what your trigger is. I don't know the thing right now. Some of you, the th- great news is a lot of you don't have to think about it. It's right there at the forefront of your mind. You're stressing about it right now. Whenever that comes up, you defeat it with the truth of Scripture. You start in Luke 12, 32, and then you preach these three points. They're short because uh, I know how it is. You don't, <laughs> you don't remember sermons. So, uh, <laughs> so you're going to preach them to yourself. You don't have to fear God, okay? You just take a picture of this verse if you have to, and here's your three points. Write these down. You can like write, if, you know, if you know that you're the kind of preacher to yourself that's going to want to expound on these notes, leave yourself a little space and just write them on a third of the page. But uh, I guess some of you aren't writing it. You're just writing them on your heart. Uh, 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 don't. Uh, you don't have to fear God. Here's your three points. Because of who he is. Number two, because of what he does. And number three, because of why he does it. I will go slow because this is not my sermon to you. It's yours to yourself. So make it your own. You don't have to fear God because of who he is. You're going to look in the mirror and you're going to preach this to yourself tomorrow morning. You don't have to fear God because of who he is. Number two, 
because of what he does. And number three, because of why he does it. Got this? So put this somewhere you can find it. Write it. You know what? Take a dry erase marker and write this verse on your mirror so that when you get dressed in the morning. And for some of you, you worry so much, do it in Sharpie. You know what? Paint it across your... Because you need this word. You don't have to fear because of who he is, what he does, and why he does it. Now you say, Tom, how can that much be packed into one verse? I mean, how is it possible to preach a whole sermon out of one verse? (laughs) Talking a long time is not a problem for preachers. And you're going to discover that as you preach that to yourself this week. Who he is, what he does. So who he is. There are three clues that tell you who God is right here in this verse. Here they are. Note, do not be afraid, little flock. He calls you his flock. Not his herd of cattle, but a flock of sheep. Right? For those of you who said seagulls, the 80s are still alive in your heart. It's actually flock of sheep. Uh, don't be afraid, little flock. Now, note, if, if we are his flock, then he is our what? shepherd and he calls you little flock he doesn't say do not be afraid mighty warrior armed to the teeth and ready for whatever comes your way right because why because they don't have to be told do not be afraid he he knows you see for everybody who said i have i have such little faith you know everything tom and james and all the lechies they always preach and all this stuff but i'm not like advanced christian i'm just little he's talking to you Whoever said you need a lot of faith? You just need a lot of Savior. You need a lot of, you need a big Jesus. A little faith is all you need. You need a big Jesus. You see, that's the key. And there it is. He knows you're little in faith. Little in size. There's so much evil in the world and we feel so small. Don't be afraid, little flock. He is your shepherd. What does it mean to be a shepherd? It means Psalm 23. He leadeth me beside still waters. He knows where the good grass is. He knows where the good water is. He, he doesn't say... He, he doesn't say, um, don't be afraid, little, little, little herd of cattle. He's not, a, he's not a rancher. You understand? He's not. Why? Because a rancher drives the cattle from behind. The shepherd leads the sheep. That's why the hymn says, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Right? He leads us. And we know his voice and we follow him. So don't be afraid, little flock. He's your shepherd. And not only is he your shepherd, because your father He is your shepherd. He is your dad. He's not only your shepherd. A shepherd knows what the sheep need. He's your father. And the father deeply cares for his children. Some of you, because of your earthly father, you won't appreciate the full delights and glory of hearing God called your heavenly father. Others of you who had a great father, it'll be easier for you to appreciate this. But my job is not to find out about your father. My job is to show you that a father, and for the fathers in here, I myself am a father, we have fathers in here, we know it's our job to care for these little jokers that are running around our house, right? We care, we deeply care for them. And your father, he is your shepherd, he is your father. You need not fear because he's your shepherd, he's your father, and he delights to, oh, here we go, delights to give you the kingdom there's only one person who can give away a kingdom that's a king you don't have to fear because god is shepherd he is your shepherd he is your father he is your king and if god is your king father shepherd if god is your king i'll tell you one thing that means no taxes he's the king right that's a whole other sermon about paying the temple tax uh it's, it really is a whole other sermon, and I, I shouldn't even begin to talk about it. But isn't it great when Jesus is sitting there with all the disciples, and they come up, and they're like, Is it lawful? Shouldn't you pay the temple tax? And Jesus is like, the king levies taxes on everybody else. The king's own kids don't, are free from taxes. That's the whole point. They're the king's family. 
basically he's saying, I'm the king of this temple, right? That's what Jesus is saying. And then he looks at Peter, he's like, but so as not to give offense, go into the lake, first fish you see, pull it out, you'll find a drachma, pay the tax. Okay. <laughs> I'm also king of the universe because I can put drachma in a fish. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's your father. He's the king. And uh, I think about a king, uh, a shepherd knows what the sheep need. The father cares for the sheep, and the king has ultimate power to get it done. You, you know, the, it's a... Sh- in some ways, it's a shame because we can't fully understand king because, you know, we've got England and they've got that figurehead and, and, and everything. It's not really how it works. They've got parliament, prime minister and everything. And in America, we have a president. But imagine a king. In America, we have a three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. A king is all three of those in one. There's no checks and balances. It's just complete. So to have a benevolent king means he's the executor, he enforces the laws, he's the legislator, he makes the laws, and he is the judicial branch. He decides among all the... Ponder that with me. There has never been an electoral college that had to put God in office. Right? He just is. From eternity past. There's never been a moment where God's like sweating the swing states. Right? How are we doing in Florida? Oh, I hope they still believe. Right? He's God, right? He's not a voted in God. Who knows what will happen in elections in this country, right? God doesn't have that. There's no need to campaign, you see. He has enough, he, all the public relations he needs is you. You're his public relations campaign. That's what Matthew 5 says. Do these good works that will what? That will give glory to your Father in heaven. See? He is your shepherd, he is your father, he is your king. I keep using the word your. I keep saying little flock. Now is as good a time as any to point this out. This promise is not for everyone. It is for those who have made Jesus the king of their life. See, I can't promise this to you. If you have no love for God, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, I can't say, so don't worry. Be happy. It's not, it's not for you. A.W. Tozer, best illustration of this. I think I've shared it here before. But A.W. Tozer says, imagine you get this knock on the door. It's the U.S. Post Office. And you get a certified mail. I mean, a big package. looks all official. And it's stamped. And you open it up. And a rich uncle has passed away, leaving you an inheritance of $270,000. And your mind is racing. I'm going to pay off this mortgage. I'm going to get this. I'm, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to get my a minivan, right? Probably not. But your mind is going crazy about $270,000. You can't believe it. And then you look closer and on the front of the envelope, you're Tom Richter, apartment 756, and this is for Tim Richards, 755. And you were wondering, because you're like, I don't have an uncle, but you, I mean, you saw 270, you could find an uncle. You know, you were trying to think, through, Right? And didn't your heart sink? I mean, didn't you? Aren't you? Oh, man. Because it wasn't addressed to you. That's how a lot of scriptures, these amazing, they're ama- amazing, better than $270,000, amazing. And they're packaged in a letter that says, little flock of God. And the danger is when you preach it, you pull it out, right? You go, look at this amazing promise. And everybody's like, that is amazing. But it's just as important to go, but is the letter addressed to you? See? And it's, addre- and it's absolutely addressed to every member of the little flock of God. They say, well, well, how do I become a member of the little flock of God? This sounds great. Good, that's right. It's called being born again. You should feel that way. You should feel that you want to be a part of God's family. And he's made a way to do just that. It's in giving you the kingdom. Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. I told you who he is. 
What he does, he delights to give you the kingdom. That's the what he does. So under the what he does, to give you the kingdom. What is the king? I mean, before I tell you what the kingdom, what does this mean? He delights to give you the kingdom. For some of you, it might be a bit of a letdown to hear your father delights to give you the kingdom. It's like, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. Why? Because God's going to, your father actually delights to give you the kingdom. You might be thinking, I'd rather just have the cash. You know, like, my stress is money. And what I really need, it's like, God, I really need money. And God's like, I'm going to give you the kingdom. Right? And he doesn't, he, it's been, I would like to point out, Jesus does not promise to give you money. He actually says the opposite. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the, into the kingdom of God. He does not promise fame or admiration among men. But God, I'm scared about what people are going to think of me. Can't you just give me some admiration among men? No, what he promises is, blessed are, men, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And he doesn't promise security in this life. He says to his disciples in the same book, Luke 21, 16, you'll be delivered up even by brothers and kinsmen and parents and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So he's like promising the opposite of what we think we need. And instead, he's giving us what? He's giving us the kingdom. And what I want you to see is it's the single best thing he could give. It's better than money. It's better than security. It underlies all these things. Because money eventually does what? Goes away. You can't take it with you. The security in this life ends. I told you. I just read the statistic last week. One out of every one people will die. It happens in their lifetime. It's going to happen to you. So, so that you can't get security in this life. It's, not, it's, a, it's an illusion. So what he promises is better than what you think you need. If that was the only lesson you walked out of here, what God has for you is actually better, always better, than what you think you need, right? He's got this, and he's saying, I'm going to give you the single best thing I can give. What is the single best thing I can give? The single best thing I can give is to give you the kingdom. The kingdom of God is what? Everywhere his rule extends. Right now, it extends over every heart that submits to the king. That's, that's part of his kingdom. Now, on earth, there's some rebels still. Satan and his minions and those hearts that have not yet... This is rebellion. In heaven, he, what he says gets done everywhere. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, when you say, God, may your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what you're saying is, the way you rule over every square inch of heaven, make that happen more and more here on earth. That's what you're saying. Let your rule extend here on earth and use the church to do it. Use every Christian, every heart that's under your care and keeping. The single best thing he can give, simply, staggeringly, unspeakingly, he gives the omnipotent. He's going to put the omnipotent rule and authority of the king. He's, uh, he has unlimited power. He has unlimited goodness. And he's going to take that unlimited power and take that unlimited goodness, put them together in this nitroglycerin of power, and he's going to put all that power on behalf of the little flock of God. You can keep the cash. I'll take that. Um, I would like to say it again. All the power and all the love of the king of the universe is going to be set into motion on behalf of you, Christian. That's what he can give. And money can't buy that. Fame can't get you there. That's what he gives. When we were on a mission trip to Bangladesh, we went with a Bengali pastor. His name was Litton Adhikari. And Pastor Litton's a funny guy. He's very, very charismatic, bubbly. You can't help but love him. And uh, I think he, I don't know, 
60, 65 years old, but just, you know, just jumping around everywhere. And uh, we went on Bangladesh. And he would come up, and we would come up to a bridge where it could be seven hours, it could be 10 hours. You know, we would come up to a hotel, never knew the situation there. We would go to preach somewhere. And over and over again, Lytton would do this thing where he would come up behind me. Look, I'm a pretty laid back dude, okay? I'm a pretty, I've traveled around. I like to think nothing rattles me. And I'm on this mission trip, and I've been on mission trips before. Really, I, nothing rattles. But I, he would come up behind me, and he would say, Do not worry, Tom. Sort of sounded Irish there, yeah, I'm not sure. It was, it was also a leprechaun. <laughs> Anyways, I meant to do a Bangladeshi accent. Anyway, he would say, uh, don't worry, don't be afraid, Tom. God loves you, Tom. God loves you, Tom. Over and over again, do not be afraid. <clears throat> I can't tell you how much more afraid that always made me. Because I'm like, what? It's a hotel. This is going to work. What? The bridge is not going to blow up. But the local, when the local comes up behind you, is like, do not worry. You're like... Why? What am I missing? What's it, what, what horrible thing is about to happen that I should totally, like, the point of that story is when I read this verse, I thought of Pastor Lytton. What he never said was, do not worry, Tom. The hotel reservation will work out. Things are organized. He didn't say that. He didn't promise, do not worry, Tom. The bridge will hold. Right? He didn't say, do not worry, Tom. This hostile crowd will receive us and they'll all receive the gospel. What he said was, do not worry. God loves you, Tom. In a way, he's right, isn't he? If God loves you, if God is for us, bridge, hotel, hostile crowds, who can be against us, you see? He delights to give you the kingdom. Not, listen, not trade you the kingdom, not sell you the kingdom, not, not exchange you the kingdom if you jokers would get in line and start earning it. Give you the kingdom. Is that worth pointing out? Give you the kingdom. Hey, let me ask you a question. Those of you who have jobs, last time you got your paycheck, when it, the last time you got your paycheck, or let me ask it this way. When's the last time you got your paycheck and you wrote a thank you note to your boss? <laughs> you know why many of you are laughing? Because your first thought is, my boss should be thanking me with every paycheck. <laughs> Unless there's some more zeros on this, what I do, right? You with me? How come you don't do that? Seriously. Okay, maybe you don't write a thank you note. How come you don't run into the boss's office? I just got my direct deposit. Thank you so much. Can we hug it out? Can we hug it out? Right? How come you don't do that? And why doesn't your boss come to you and go, thank you so much. I know I, you know I paid you. Why don't you do that? And the reason you don't do that is a wage, by definition, precludes thanksgiving. The wage is the thanks. You don't need any gratitude. We're square. Now, believe me, some of you are like, we're not square. I need more. You can fight about how much you're getting fine. But at the end of the day, you agreed to take a job for a certain amount of money, and that money's being paid to you. We're square. You get what I'm saying? There's no need for gratitude if there's a wage. But the Bible says your father delights to give you the kingdom. How, how much money did you pay? What did you do to earn you being born? Everybody in here, take a deep breath. How much that cost you? Who here put a down payment on the sun this morning and its shining rays? That's why the Bible says for Christians, we give thanks in all circumstances. That's why it says we're praying without ceasing. Why? Because we didn't earn this life. And we didn't earn the kingdom. Not one of us deserves on our own merit. It's a gift. See? And he delights to do it. That's the last thing. What did I tell you? The three points. Who he is what he does, and why he does it. A lot of people think, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. He's going to give us the kingdom. 
We're going to be like saved and redeemed and agents of change on this earth. We're going to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper. And one day, you know, we won't have to do it in remembrance of him. There'll be a marriage supper, the lion, the lamb. That's all great and everything. But does God really, like, want to do that? See? A lot of us have this notion that fundamentally God, deep down, in the very heart of God, if you could boil it down and get through all the theology, ultimately you would come to God is angry. At the heart of all things, people have this mixed up notion that God is angry. Maybe it's because the authority figures in their life, that's what they've seen. But what Jesus is at great pains to point out this morning is that your father is going to give you the kingdom, but he's doing it freely. It, it actually makes him happy to do it. How many of you think that God is like some judge? And he knows. He sees the defendant. He sees the DA. And he's heard the evidence mount up. And this judge is experienced. He's all-knowing. He's Come on. He's seen a thousand cases. And that defendant, that defendant is guilty. And he knows it. You know what I'm saying? He knows it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he wants nothing more than to put out justice. I mean, he wants the hammer, the gavel to come down and put this guy away forever and ever. But because of some technicality, because of some legal maneuvering by a clever attorney, some defense attorney, and something, you know, got him off the hook, the judge cannot do what he wants to do, which is put this guy away forever. Instead, because of some technicality, he has to let him off the hook. He has to let him go. And so he's like, he really wants to say guilty, but he's like, all right, innocent, I'm watching you, you know, right? That's many people's idea of, of uh, salvation, actually. Many people actually believe that God, what he really wants to do, his deepest desire is to pour out judgment and wrath, but because of Jesus on the cross, maybe, you know, kind of twisted God's arm into, you know, letting guilty sinners go free. And Jesus says, get that thought. It's satanic. Throw it out of your mind. Why? Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. The happiest thing he could do is to give you, like, rule over the earth and subdue it to make something of this garden. I started that dream in the very beginning. I want to populate the earth. God is saying, I want to populate the earth with a bunch of little replicas of myself who love like I love, who share like I share, who think so deeply about the world and they love it and I want the whole world filled with that and I've not quit on that dream. When sin destroyed it, I undid sin's curse. Jesus is alive and one day at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, we're going to see that dream fulfilled. He delights to do that. That's not... When, when we sin and all that stuff, it's it, your father, I, one day, I can't believe I'm saying this, but one day I really do delight my son Carson who's in there destroying your property. I'm going to give that boy a set of car keys. I, I know, I know. That's him. But deep down, every dad in here, aren't you with me on this? Don't you delight to do that? That's what I actually want. I want, it's like I want him to have the kind of character that can contain and properly use the kind of power I want to give him. See? I just want his character big enough that can match the freedom of a set of car keys because he can use it for great good or he can use it to destroy lives. Now imagine when God gives you the ability to discern and rule over places and people in the new heaven, new earth. What does he need? He needs your character built up to that point. He's, believe me, he delights to give you the kingdom. Some of us, maybe we're not yet ready to receive parts all that he has for us. But that's not God's fault. God's not angry. And he's going to continue to work in us. That's his promise to you, little flock. And that's why he's got a lot bigger things than your worries. I don't know what your trigger is this week. 
I don't know what's going to make you worry. I don't know what's going to stress. But I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to preach this sermon to yourself. I want you to, this is the only time you, we can allow selfies. You know, snap this video of yourself and read Luke 12, 32 to yourself and say, I'm not going to fear today. And that trigger, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you force it out of your mind. Because you can't unthink a thought. You can only replace it. And what you replace it with is this. I'm not going to fear because of who he is. No, Satan. You know, uh-uh. No, I'm sorry. He's my father. He's my shepherd. He's a king. I'm not going to fear because of what he does. He gives me the greatest gift he could, his rule and reign in my life, the kingdom. And I'm not going to fear last of all because of his character, because of what he delights to do. He's free. He's not constrained to do this. He actually wants to love me. He wants to give me this kingdom. So I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to be afraid. That's who he is. That's who he is. And that way my fear, my worry, is, it's, it's not about me. I'm focusing on the Lord, focusing on God. And you preach that sermon over and over to yourself this week. That's what I want you to do. So you got, got the sermon? Got it? Okay, we're going to do it this week. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our shepherd, father, king. Thank you for giving us the kingdom. Thank you for the fact that you delight to do it, that you're not constrained, you're not forced. You never do anything that you don't want to do, so to speak. And I pray for everybody in here that as a Christian, that letter is addressed to them and that they would open it and enjoy every part of that parcel, every part of the blessings you have. For anyone in here who has not yet received the good news of Jesus Christ, for anyone in here who would say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer, I'm, 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 maybe I'm seeking or I'm not there yet. Father, I pray you continue to work in them, continue to draw them by your Holy Spirit so that this promise can one day, they can go back and listen to this podcast, not as an outsider under the wrath of God, as part of the little flock of God that they too because all are welcome we pray this in Jesus name Amen God gave us a way to remember these truths on the night Jesus was betrayed the Bible said he took some bread and after he'd given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you he said do this in remembrance of me in the same manner, after supper, the Bible says Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The ushers know how to get us respectfully and reverently to the table. And uh, behind all that reverence, we hope is some joy. And we come at his invitation for all who are believers not yet a believer, you don't need to receive the bread and the cup, you need to receive Christ you need to open your heart to him the reality, this is just the symbol you need the reality today and so we certainly invite you to do that so while all things are prepared, let's prepare our hearts to receive the good gifts of God podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.